Psalm 73, 1 through 17. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely, in vain, I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. This is the word of the Lord. Several years ago, I took my family and went off to Seattle for a year. I did a year of sabbatical there where I worked on a second master's degree. And I was really blessed in the opportunity to go there. The people from this church really helped me, provided some of the finances so that I could do that. Uh, just made it possible for me to be there. My wife worked full-time while she was out there so that I could be free to just focus on my studies for a year. Uh, it really was a, a blessing to have that opportunity to be able to do that. But while I was there, I met this young man who was also there. He was in a MDiv program, so he was going to be there for three or more years studying. And got to know him a little bit, and along with knowing him, he got telling me a little bit of his story. And one of the things he told me was that uh, during that time, three years he was there, he and his wife both neither had to work. Uh, they were both in school during that time and free from doing that. Matter of fact, finances were never a problem for them. They never had to worry about it. The reason was, was because when he was young, his father and his uncle started a business. And when they started this business, started some retail stores, they would buy a piece of property and then they would build a store on that property and they'd put the piece of property in one of their children's name. Well, that store grew into many stores and a large chain of stores throughout the South. And every time they built a store, they'd put the piece of property in the children's name, store would be built, and then that store would pay lease payments to one of their children. So for the rest of their life, as long as this chain existed, they received these very large monthly payments from these stores. As he told me that, he said, I don't tell that to many people. Wonderful couple doing wonderful things, serving the Lord wholeheartedly, generous with what they had, I think using the gifts and opportunities they had very well. But he said, I don't tell that to many people because usually I can see as soon as I tell that the look on the face of the people I tell it to. A little bit of resentment. They don't like me so well all of a sudden because of that incredible blessing that I get to enjoy. And as he was telling me, I thought, I don't like you so much right now either. And it's funny, the situation that I was in, which was a situation of real blessing, suddenly didn't seem as blessed because of their situation. It's funny how envy does that, isn't it? It can take even something good 
and create discontent there. When we see something that seems better or more, or especially when we see something that is something we really long for and we don't have. Envy takes root, grabs hold. It's a very destructive emotion. Herman Melville called it the rabies of the heart. Socrates called it the ulcer of the soul. In Proverbs 14, we read, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. I think Dorothy Sayers described it well. She wrote, Envy is the great leveler. If I cannot level things up, uh, it will level them down. The words constantly in its mouth are my rights and my wrongs. At best, envy is a climber and a snob. At its worst, it's a destroyer. Rather than have anybody happier than itself, it will see us all miserable together. And envy often does that, doesn't it? It doesn't produce a lot of good. It just kind of makes everything worse. It's a, it's a theme we find throughout Scripture. Uh, Mark chapter 7, Jesus talks about it. He includes it in a list of things that he says uh, are sins, evil that resides in the heart of men. In Romans, Paul includes it in a list of examples of every kind of wickedness, and he says it's very closely tied to idolatry. Galatians includes it in a list of acts of the flesh. Titus uh, pairs it with malice. James pairs it with selfish ambition. In Ecclesiastes, the teacher tells us that it's a, it's a struggle common to all mankind. He writes, I saw that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. Think how many stories in the Bible have envy at the core of that story. Story of Cain and Abel, envy there, doing its destructive work. Jacob and Esau over the father's blessing. Israel wanting a king because they envied their neighbors. Saul's envy of David. The older son's envy of his, of his younger brother, the prodigal, because of the father's reception of him. Jesus tells the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, workers who envied the equal pay that those were given who had worked much less. Destructive. Seems to do damage wherever it is. Uh, it not only poisons the people that it's aimed at, but also poisons the one who wields it as a weapon. Most of us know that. Most of us don't really like the feeling of envy. It's not one of those you get a lot of enjoyment out of. You know, we kind of wish it could go away. But it creeps up all the time, doesn't it? It's hard to get away from. You see someone else's children succeeding or flourishing, maybe in a way yours aren't. And suddenly there it is, pops its head up. You see a couple enjoying relationship with one another, maybe celebrating their romance in some way, in a way you long for. There it is again. Maybe you see a coworker or a fellow student succeeding in some way or receiving accolades for good work done. And even though maybe you're getting some accolades yourself, if they have more, suddenly it creeps back in, doesn't it? A neighbor, a friend, even a family member, even somebody you love could be taking that vacation or buying that car or enjoying that house that you could only dream about. And even though I feel good about them, envy's still there, still takes root and grabs hold. It is a hard thing to run away from. Most people I talk to who are struggling with envy of some kind wish they could let go of it, wish they could just make it go away. They understand it steals away contentment. It makes things harder, but it's hard to let go of. It feels like there are really only two solutions. The one solution, as Dorothy Sayers, I think, said well, is to somehow make it level by bringing the other down. Maybe bringing them down through my words or my actions, a lot of times just in my thoughts. If I could bring them down and make it level, envy would go away and disappear. 
maybe it's I got to find a way to get myself lifted up. I got to figure out the secret. What do they have? What can I do so I can be equal again? We can make things level again. Maybe I demand of others to lift me up. Maybe I demand of God to lift me up. Because if things could just be level, envy goes away and I can be content again. The problem is it seems no matter how much you lift up or put down, envy creeps right back in in another place in another way. never seems to really go away. It just is one of those infectious things that's hard to rid ourselves of. What I love about the 73rd Psalm, one of my favorite psalms, the Psalm of Asaph, where I think he found a third way. I think he was struggling with that cursed, horrible thing of envy, and he found a third way, a way that didn't require that he bring others down, a way that didn't require that he lift himself up or demand he be lifted up. Somehow he found another way to find contentment, to let envy go away and to heal it. 73rd Psalm. So we don't know a whole lot about Asaph. We know he was a director of worship in the temple. Uh, he was probably a godly man, well-respected man, a man who knew scriptures well, probably a talented musician. Uh, so again, a good man, a man who's probably blessed in a lot of ways. And what we do know about Asaph, and again, he wrote several psalms, 11 of the psalms, 73 through 83. Again, insightful man. But Asaph also knows this struggle with envy and the, the horrible nature of envy. And he tells us in the 73rd Psalm that he knew it so deeply. It had taken root and grabbed hold of his heart so tough, so hard, that he said, my feet almost slipped. The assumption here is that he means I almost fell away from God. The path that I was on, this righteous path, this path with God, I almost fell away from it because envy had so taken root in my heart. He says in verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He struggled with one of the most difficult types of envy to deal with, isn't it? It's when you see people who clearly do not deserve the blessings they have. And they have blessings that I don't. It's hard enough when I see someone who kind of deserves it. When I'm talking to that guy in school, I kind of hated him for it. But I got over it. Because he was a good man doing good with the blessings he had. Asaph says, I had to look at people who honestly were wicked, were arrogant, were evil in what they were doing with these gifts. Things that I longed for, and they were enjoying them. It just doesn't make sense. It's hard to live with. And he really did struggle with it to the point of almost falling away. And Asaph did what so many of us do. You see something like that, and you get so focused on it, it grabs hold of your heart, and you just can't take your eyes off of it. You can't stop thinking about it. And you know what happens when that is true. Suddenly it starts growing. Suddenly this inequity that bothered you starts becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, exaggerated. And that seems what happened with Asaph as the more he thought about it. He says in verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. So when he looked at these people that he envied, he said, look at them. They have no struggles. They're not plagued by any human ill. Always free of care. Who do you know that that's true of? They may have been blessed. They may have had blessings that he wished he had. But suddenly they became people whose life was perfect. Everything went their way. There was never a struggle in their life. It became that big. We see a hint, though, that he understood that there are dangers that come with a life of ease and with power and with wealth. 
Because he goes on in verses 8 through 11 to talk about the fact that, you know, that that wealth, that ease, that power put them sometimes in dangerous choice and tempted them to do some pretty ugly things. Tempted them to come to believe that somehow those blessings were the source of life, not the one who gave the blessings. Caused them to somehow believe that somehow maybe I deserved or I earned those things. They were mine and I was the one who produced them. Came to actually believe that I don't need God. Maybe God doesn't even matter. Maybe God doesn't even know what's going on. I can do whatever I want and blessing will still come my way. It's really about me. If there is a God, he doesn't really matter. Asaph kind of understood. Sometimes these blessings stir something in us that's kind of ugly, something kind of dangerous. And yet he still wanted them. He still resented the fact that he didn't have them. His view of them was not only out of balance and distorted in some ways, his view of himself I think, became distorted in some ways. He goes on and writes about himself. Surely in vain I have kept my, my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. On one side you have total blessing and total wickedness. And then on the other side you have total innocence and purity and total curse. I think there's a lot true in what Asaph's seeing. He's asking a question that a lot of us ask. Why a lot of times do to, to such bad things happen to good people? Why a lot of times the good things happen to bad people? Why is there such inequity in our world? It, it's a fair question. But he did what we so often do when we become consumed with it, trying to make sense of it all. It got bigger and it got bigger and it got bigger and the distance got further between them and him to the point that it now justifies the demand that it changed. It can't be this way. It has to be different. C.S. Lewis wrote, Envy always brings the truest charge or the charge nearest the truth that she can think up because it hurts the most. Close to the truth. Almost true. Because if it's, if it's really kind of true, there's a lot of truth in it, and I take it a little further. Now my demand is reasonable and justified. It absolutely has to be different for life to be okay. Asaph seemed to understand that he was at that place as he looked back. Matter of fact, Asaph seems to mourn the place he was. He understands how dangerous it was. He was right on the edge of falling away from God. And he understood as someone who was a spiritual leader and others looked at, had influence in the life of others, if he had fallen, it wasn't just about him. I doubt at that moment he knew that. But when he looked back, he understood. If I had fallen... If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children, he says. How many times have we heard those stories where someone who has influence upon others for Christ gets caught up in the things of this world, the lusts of the flesh, and they think it's only about them and they're the only ones going to be affected. But how often is it true that, boy, that a whole lot of others get pulled down with them right behind them? We influence others. We all do. If we are followers of Christ, we have people we influence when we make choices. Asaph didn't see it till he looked back. But looking back, he seemed so thankful. Oh, thank God that I didn't do that. Not only that I didn't fall away, but others didn't fall away because of me. Because I'd be a man of influence. I, I hear people often talk about openness as a wonderful trait. We should be open. It's a godly thing to do. Be open. Total openness is a good thing. And I kind of want to say, well, kind of. It's kind of a good thing. I think openness often serves the purpose of love. It is very often a wonderful, good thing. Sometimes, no. 
sometimes things shouldn't be shared with everybody in every situation. We ought to consider who we're speaking to and the impact it'll have on them. Now, we probably lean often too far the other way. We probably sometimes hold in much more than we should. We should be more open with each other. But sometimes I want to say to people, openness is not the number one priority. Love is the number one priority. Openness often serves that. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there are things I ought to shut up about. Sometimes there are things I ought to struggle with internally or I ought to take to someone more mature to talk about. Or, as Asaph did, this is something I need to take to my God. He's talked about openness is necessary, but not everywhere at all times. And Asaph looks back and he seems thankful that even though he may have been tempted to, he didn't just share this with just everybody at that time. But he was stuck. He was in a hard place, a bad place. Envy had grabbed hold pretty hard, this time probably in a way that he'd not known before. It was doing his destructive work in his life. And he says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. He tried to do what most of us would do at that point. Figure it out. Make sense of it. There is such an equity. There's got to be a way to figure it out and make it all make sense, right? Something's wrong here. I'm doing something wrong. I've got to find what that thing is I'm doing wrong. They figured something out that I didn't figure out. I've got to figure out what they figured out so I can get it even again. I've got to find some expert who has the formula because if they got the formula, we can get it back to level again. Maybe I've got to go to my God and demand he change things because look how bad it is, God. It's not fair. It doesn't make sense. You have to change it. You have to because things have to be level. It's the only way I can imagine life being okay said, I tried to understand it all, and pretty much all it did was give him a really bad headache. He couldn't quite figure it out. He says, until, and this is that key little phrase in the 73rd Psalm, where everything suddenly flips in the story. I entered the sanctuary of God. And that's all he says. Wouldn't you love more details? Wouldn't you love to know what happened there, what God said to him, what that encounter was like? And all we're told is, I entered the sanctuary of God. In that moment, he took that question and that struggle, that difficulty that troubled him so deeply, and he entered the sanctuary. He came before his God, and alone with God, he was open. He brought the real question. And I think Asaph did something different than just demanding God change it. I think he brought his real heart before God, his real questions to God. He sought answers. And all we know is when he came out of that encounter... He was a different man. His perspective had changed as a result of that encounter with God. One commentator points out that there seemed to be at least three ways that he was reoriented. First, he says he gained a new view of the outcome of the actions of the wicked. So if you look there in the second half of, uh, what is it, verse 17. Then I understood their final destiny. Sure, you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. See, Asaph looks around his world and he says, it seems at times like sin is winning. Wickedness is in the lead. It doesn't make sense to me. And then he came before God, he sat alone with God, and somehow was exposed to his God. And suddenly he saw things differently. God is a judge. God is a good judge and a powerful judge. Sin is not winning. 
Wickedness will not win and has already been defeated. He doesn't have to become the judge. There is a good judge in charge who knows when and how and in what way judgment needs to happen. He knows the whole story. He knows when ultimately wickedness truly needs to be judged. We just don't understand that. As we read in Romans 12, I think a lot of times when we take vengeance ourselves, when we become the judges, we screw it up. We are horrible judges. In fact, we do just a miserable little job of it. We may think, boy, I really got them. God will take care of it much better than we will. I think he will destroy in ways we can't even begin to think of destroying. But he will also show grace when grace is needed in ways we can't begin to imagine grace. God's a good judge. And as he sat before God and he saw him, he understood God is righteous. God's a good judge. I don't have to take this into my own hands. Secondly, he was also reoriented not just about his understanding of the wicked, but about his understanding of himself. He goes on and says in verse 21, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Suddenly when I'm encountering God and I stand before him, suddenly I realize, you know, I don't understand everything I think I understand. Suddenly, there's one who understands a lot more than me, who, who gets it in ways I could never begin to get it, whose wisdom is far above my wisdom and power is far above my power. I think when Asaph came before God and saw God, one of the things that happened to him was he, he realized his position again. I'm a creature standing before a creator. I'm a child who has a heavenly father. Um, who in the world am I to think that I'm going to figure it all out? then I'm going to understand everything. God has created us as beings with minds, with volition. People have bodies that, with which we can act. He's created us as people who are not helpless. He's given us important tasks to do. He's called us to sometimes use our minds and to think and to make choices. We are not helpless. And when I have people come to me and try and communicate in some ways, I'm helpless. Someone else always has to do it. I want to say, that's just not true. That's a denial of what Scripture tells us about you. You are not helpless. You have abilities and choices in mind. But we can also err on the side of saying that we are independent, that we are enough in and of ourselves. That's not true biblically either. We are created to be dependent people. We have remarkable abilities. We're not helpless. But we are not all in all. We cannot handle it all by ourselves. We are created to be a people who are with one another and depend on one another. More than that, we're created to be a people who submit to and serve and depend upon our God. We are not independent. It's the danger sometimes of blessings. We come to believe that somehow we're handling it just fine on our own because we don't understand those blessings always are only there because of our good God. Somehow, as Asaph came before God, he came to understand, who am I to demand of God? The one in whom all wisdom and all power and majesty resides. Who am I to think that somehow my way is the better way? That you have to prove to me things are the way they should be. I stand before God that I have to submit to and obey. I'm just simply a brute beast before him when I demand. But third, didn't end there. He comes before a God who is righteous, a good judge. He comes before a God who is all-powerful. But the great part of the story is... He also comes before a God who tenderly cares and loves. He, he came to a renewed understanding of God's presence. Read on in verse 23. 
Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love some of those phrases in that passage. As he encountered God, he came away also saying, you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. God is the strength of my heart. This God who's a good judge, who I can trust to judge the wickedness, I can judge to make things right. If things need to be equal and equitable and fair and just, I can leave it in his hands. He's the one who can do it. I stand before a God who is wise, who understands things I could never begin to understand. I understand some. By his grace, he reveals much to me. But man, he is so far beyond me. He is so much more powerful. He is so much wiser. His knowledge is so far beyond my knowledge. I stand before a God whom I depend upon that I have to submit to and follow if I'm going to find the right way. But how thankful I am, I also stand before a God who stoops down and humbles himself and through his son reaches out and comes to us and takes us by our right hand and tenderly loves and cares for us and is willing to guide each of us as individuals. A God who's willing to be our strength in our times of weakness and need. I also serve a God who cares, who's present, who's with me, who's right here with us right now, whose eye is on every one of us and heart is turned towards us. When I encounter that God, when I come before that God and understand who he is, who it is that I'm with, suddenly my whole perspective changes. And it did for Asaph. Asaph came out of that encounter and he he sums it all up by this. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign, sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. When you, when you encounter envy, and you will, you probably will today, when you encounter envy, there are times a simple reminder of who it is that we serve and who it is that's with us is enough. But there's sometimes envy grabs hold in the way it did with Asaph, and we can't get loose of its grip. And I think in those times, like Asaph, we are tempted, one, to make things all level and even by somehow demanding we be lifted up, fighting only to be lifted up, to, to be the, the climber and the snob. Or sometimes we're tempted to say, I've got to bring others down. It's my only hope. Whether in my words or my actions or in my thoughts, I've got to bring them down to my level to be the destroyer. My hope is, though, you'll consider the way of Asaph, that we'll all consider the way of Asaph. The way of Asaph is one that says, actually, I need to bring that real and honest struggle to God. I need to get alone with him. I need to spend time in his word. I need to spend time in prayer. Sometimes I just need to go for a walk in the woods and talk to him. But I need to get with him. I need to sit before him long enough, look at him close enough, make myself available to him in such a way that hopefully I come to see him better and better and more and more. I come to understand who it is that I'm with. See, what I'm not encouraging is that we we do this thing that I think too often... uh, this kind of sermon could encourage. You know what? You envy something. You look at others and you say, they have, I don't, and I feel bad about that. 
I ought to be grateful. I got good stuff in my life. Just be grateful. Tell myself I'm grateful. Let's find something to be grateful for and it all goes away. There are times that's fine. And there are times that's plenty, right? And we do have much to be grateful for and we can remember that and be just fine. There's sometimes, though, that that's just a lie. That's just saying, let's just push it down again. Let's pretend it's not there. And let's just kind of cover it up so nobody notices that it's there. I think Asaph kind of lays out a different path for us. He very honestly and openly struggled with that question. He brought it to his God, and I think he laid it before his God and struggled to understand. And in God's grace, he helped him to understand him. Not necessarily all the struggle, but to see and know him. And if we sit with God and we know God, we come before him and we spend the time that's required to be with our God, I think gratitude will start bubbling up. We don't need a shallow, phony gratitude. Because in the presence of our God, to know him, to see him, to understand his relationship with us, I don't think we can help but experience gratitude. What he's done, what he's doing, what he will do, who he is, gratitude is the most natural response in the world. I think sometimes we have to be patient enough. G.K. Chesterton is known for saying that gratitude is the mother of all virtues. G.K. Chesterton also said this, gratitude being nearly the greatest of all human duties is also nearly the most difficult. Real gratitude, I think sometimes it takes time, it takes struggle, it takes patience. God, I want to understand, I want to know, I want to keep coming back to you again and again. And when we understand him and when we see him, when those things in the world that sometimes distract and take hold, we can let go of long enough to really see him Gratitude, I think, will find us there. And gratitude crushes envy. And then we get to do what we're called to do, to be a blessing people. People of God have always been called to be a blessing people. Nation of Israel said blessings were poured out on them so that they then might bless the nations around them. Now, they often failed to do that, but that's what they were called to do. We as the people of God are called to be a blessing people. Romans 12 says this, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Evil envy does the exact opposite, doesn't it? Envy mourns what others celebrate. Envy celebrates what others mourn. That is not who we're called to be. When we truly understand our position before God and the God who is with us, we're free now to truly celebrate the blessings of others, to mourn their losses, and to be a people who want to bring more blessing to our world, not diminish and take away. That's who we're meant to be, a people who bless, a blessing people. So let's be about that. But let's take the slow, um, patient, honest path to it. That sometimes I think we have to if it's really going to sustain and last. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the, the story of Asaph. I thank you for the honesty of Asaph that helps us understand that there really is hope. Father, I'm thankful that uh, we stand before a God that is powerful as you are and righteous as you are. But Father, we also know that you're a God who cares, that you're a God who is personal and with us, sees us and loves us. Father, help us do whatever it takes to know that and understand that more deeply. As Paul prayed, Father, I just pray that each of us would come to understand just how wide and how long and how high and how deep is your love for us, that we might live in the midst of that instead of getting lost in the blessings of others. Thank you, Father, uh, for the gifts you give us. In your blessed name.
Amen.